Good to be back. If you are able, uh, would you stand with me? I'm going to be reading from Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Just the first four verses. Paul writes this letter to his true child in the common faith, Titus. And here's what he says. Starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray. Father, as we start into this book this morning, I am just thrilled at how much you can pack into just a few short words. And as we begin to think and concentrate on what it means to be an elder, what it means to be a pastor, what it means to be a godly leader, and what that then means for us as a congregation and how we choose those leaders, I pray that this text this morning would be powerful in that endeavor. Father, without your word, we would be ignorant on how to, change, or how to choose leaders and, and how to put leaders in place, but you've outlined it for us, you've told us, you've explained it, and so I pray this morning that you would help me to be able to do a good job of explaining these verses, even as we begin thinking about elders. I pray you would help me in Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. As most of you know, our church is in the process of calling two more people uh, in pastoral leadership here. One of the positions we're calling a youth pastor, another position we're calling an associate pastor, and both of those positions come with their own set of responsibilities, their own set of expectations, and we're excited. We're looking forward to who God might call to fill those two positions, and so The last time our elders uh, were together, we thought, you know, responsibilities and expectations uh, for those specific roles are good, and we need all that, but we need to make sure that we understand that the men that we call to those positions meet the qualifications of a biblical leader. In other words, we need to make sure that the person we call to leadership has a heart that's modeled after the word of God. And so here's what we decided. We decided in our elders group that we would pause our study of 1 Corinthians for a little while and we would dive into this book of Titus. And why would we choose Titus? Well, Titus, along with 1 and 2 Timothy, are often referred to as the pastoral epistles. And in each of these three books, Paul is addressing a teaching, a false teaching that's happening in the churches. But he also, in the process tells Timothy and tells Titus how to establish godly leadership and how to put in God's kinds of leaders. So while it benefits everyone in terms of the theology contained there, it's a particular benefit for 
us as we think about how to put pastors in place and local church functions. And so I'm excited. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to taking in the next few weeks. I don't know if we're going to go through the whole book of Titus uh, or if we're just going to go through the first chapter. But at least for the next several weeks, we'll be looking at what it means to be a godly leader. This makes sense to do this as a church. Before we choose a leader, we need to know what kind of leader uh, we're looking for. What should we expect from an aspiring church leader? Now, let me hasten to add this uh, to the conversation that we're going to have this morning. We're going to be talking about what is expected of folks that we're looking for to fill offices of elder and to fill offices of pastor. But at the same time, these qualifications that we're going to talk about this morning are also expected of me, of Chris, and of the other four elders that are already in place. We're not off the hook just because we're looking for someone new. These apply to us as well. This is a continual standard that God holds up and says, you need to measure your leaders by these qualifications. So that's one of the reasons why we decided to hold off on voting for elder until we get through these first four verses at least. Because if you're going to vote for who an elder is, you need to know what are the qualifications. And we need to make sure that our elders are held to those qualifications. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Now, there is nothing that Paul requires of a godly leader that he doesn't already exemplify in his life. And so these first four verses are really a look at Paul and how he views himself and how he views his role as a leader. And from that, we find some rich theology on how we should be looking for those that are appointed to leadership here. So I'm going to use this, first four verses. We're going to evaluate pastoral staff, incoming pastoral staff by this, but we're also going to take these first four verses and we're going to apply this bar to our existing elders. Okay? This is scary because this applies to me as well as to anyone of the other pastors and elders that are in here. So God's call to us, is to rise up to these qualifications, and if we're not there yet, to either mature in them or to step out as a role of a leader. That's God's call. Now, no book of the Bible should ever be read without some kind of context. So let me give you a little bit of background on this book of Titus so that you have an idea and understanding of where we're going as we uh, launch into verse 1. Paul here is writing this letter to his associate Titus. We discover his name in verse 4. He says, I'm writing to Titus. In verse 5, we find out that Titus is stationed on the island of Crete. And that's where he's receiving this letter. Crete is an island located off the southeast edge of Greece. So it's very close to where Corinth is at. So a lot of the same characteristics that we saw in the city of Corinth as we're setting through there are the same characteristics we find on this island of Crete. Crete was known, and it was located well, for its sea trade. It eventually became the home to what we would call pirates, guys that would go out on the sea and they would rob and and steal from other ships that were out there. Crete was known for its rough character. It also had on the island roughly 100 cities. Now, this island isn't huge. Uh, It's large, but it's not huge. But they had 100, at least 100 different little cities across this island. And these cities would fight each other all the time. There was constant infighting uh, taking place among the people there. The Cretans lived a very 
self-indulgent, belligerent, wild, immoral kind of lifestyle, sexual promiscuity and gluttony at their feasts. It was just typical. That was normal of how they acted there. Cretans told and retold the story of Zeus. If you remember from school, Zeus was the head of the gods. He was the, the mythical god figure who kind of controlled all the other gods. And the Cretans said this. They said, Zeus was born and died on the island of Crete. Therefore, Cretans are better than any of the other people because it was from here that the main guy came from. Now, no one else in Greece and no one else in the Eastern world bought that story. And so there was a widespread sentiment that all Cretans are liars. That's just how they were known. They were, they were liars. If you remember back when we were going through the book of Corinthians, we said that the word Corinthianize meant to be sexually immoral. Well, the word Cretanize meant to tell a lie. If you were Cretanizing, you were speaking an untruth. To speak of a Cretan's point of view meant to speak of deception. In fact, if you glance down in your Bible, in verse 12, Paul even quotes one of the Cretan poets. And he says this. This is what the poet, a Cretan poet, had to say about themselves. He said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. <laughs> Not exactly the kind of welcoming billboard you'd like to see as you came into town, right? Welcome to Montgomery. Home of lazy gluttons, liars, and evil beasts. It's not exactly flattering, is it? But that's what they were known for. They even called themselves by these kinds of names. It was a pagan island with undeniable ties to Greek mythology, and it dominated the landscape. And from that, we had all kinds of immoralities. It was on this island that Paul planted a church, and God was doing a work. And God sends Titus there to organize the church and to organize the functions and the leaders within that church. It's kind of cool to me that Paul always picks what seems to be the most immoral, corrupt places to plant a church. But isn't that just like God? Because who needs God more than anyone else? The morally corrupt, right? So Paul's writing this letter to Titus. He's sending in this letter and he's saying, here's what I want you to do. Here's some instructions for setting up this church. Now, most likely, the things that Titus read as he read this letter were things that he already knew. Now, why do we say that? Well, because we know from the book of 2 Corinthians that it was Titus who carried the first letter to the Corinthians to them. It was Titus who stayed with the Corinthians with Paul's first letter and began to put into practice what Paul told them. Titus was very experienced with messy churches. We know from our study of 1 Corinthians that the city, the, the church at Corinth was probably the messiest church Paul ever had to deal with. And it was Titus who went there and helped to organize that church. So Titus had a tremendous amount of firsthand experience with messy churches. So it makes sense that Paul would send this letter to Titus and, and station him on the island of Crete. So most likely, what Titus is reading as he's reading through this letter is a review of sorts. He already knows it, but Paul is showing, here's what I want you to do. 
There's probably another reason why Paul is writing the letter, and that is he knows that the people on the island of Crete, in the church that's established there, will also read this letter. And Paul wants them to know that Titus has all of the apostolic authority that Paul has granted to him to come in and make the changes necessary to put the church in order. Because Titus could walk in, he's saying, I'm here to set things in order, and they say, who are you? So Titus comes in with this letter from Paul, and he says, here's who I am. Paul sent me. He's called me to establish the church here. And so it's lending him authority, credence, as he sets up this church. Now I mentioned earlier that Paul never expects anything of godly leaders that he himself is not already putting into practice. Paul is the master of practicing what you preach. He says, he, he preaches, and he also puts it in practice. Paul's life is an exemplary model of what we're going to look at this morning and what we're going to establish for our leaders. So let's, let's dig in and look. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. It's one sentence in the Greek and in the English. If you notice, there's no, there's no period until you get to the end of verse 4. It's a very complicated sentence. It's packed not only with doctrinal truth, but with practical application. It's amazing the things that come out of this passage. Paul is going to set the stage for godly leaders. There are at least four life principles of a godly leader that we're going to pull out of this text this morning. They're in your message notes, and you can follow along as we go there. There's, there's four principles that Paul says, every biblically qualified leader should have these four life principles. Number one, he should have the right mindset. Secondly, he should have the right mission in life. Third, his ministry should look a particular way. And finally, he should be multiplying himself as he leads and disciples others. So let's look at this. First, what is the mindset that every godly leader, every elder, every pastor should have? Look at verse 1. It starts there. Paul, this is who's writing the letter, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's stop right there for a second. That word servant there is the Greek word doulos. And I only mention that because the Greek word doulos properly translated is the word slave. It's a slave is someone who is under the control and at the whim of the master. A slave is someone who has no rights of his own, but he's, is unequivocally there to serve and carry out the master's will. A slave doesn't talk back. A slave doesn't call the shots. A slave simply does what the master tells him to do. So Paul's first mindset is, I am a slave. Of who? Of God. Secondly, look what he says. He says, I am an apostle of of Jesus Christ, lowercase a, I am an apostle, lowercase a. What is an apostle? Apostle simply means a messenger. It means someone who shares a message. So he is an apostle of who? He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is a slave of God carrying a message of Jesus Christ. What is Paul's mindset? Paul's mindset is this. I am nothing but the lowliest of slaves carrying out the duty that God would have me carry out. 
It's a humble, it's a lowly, it is a view of oneself that says, I am down here and God is up here. Paul has a correct mindset. Unfortunately, a lot of pastors today don't have this mindset. A lot of pastors come into a church and their mindset is this, I'm in control here, I'm the boss here, I'm the CEO, and I'm calling the shots. You all come under my authority. You all do it the way I want to do. And if you cross me, look out, I'm going to take you out. That's the mindset of a lot of pastors. And Paul says, that runs completely counter to what God would have us to think of ourselves. Pastors and elders need to have a slave mentality. I'm here for one purpose and one purpose only. That is to carry the message of Jesus Christ. Paul said, I preach Jesus and him crucified. That's all I knew among you, Jesus and him crucified. It's a lowly, humble, modest opinion of oneself. Now, does Paul ever exert, exert authority in the church? Absolutely. Paul has to assert, exert authority in the church, but he always, always does it under the auspice of, I am under the master's control. And so, even the authority that Paul puts out there, he recognizes that that, that authority has been given to him as a stewardship of the master. It's never his own. It's a slave mentality. This is what we want in our leaders. This is what we want in our elders. This is what we want in those that we're going to call to pastoral ministry. This is what we want from those that we are going to circle on our ballots in just a few minutes. A humble mindset. Secondly, Paul says one should have a mission a proper mission. And there's a threefold mission that Paul here lays out. Look at it starting at the end of verse 1 and going into verse 2. He says this, Paul, I'm a servant of God. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin. There's a threefold ministry here. I'm going to give you all three of them, and then we're going to come back and we'll tie them together and make sense of them collectively, okay? There's a threefold mission that every godly leader should have based on what Paul is telling Titus here. Number one, they have a mission for the faith of God's elect. Number two, they have a mission for the knowledge of truth which accords with godliness And number three, they have a mission for the hope of eternal life. Let's look at each one of those in turn so you understand them. Number one, godly leaders should have a mission to bring God's elect to faith. To bring God's elect to faith. Who are the elect? We elect, the word elect simply means chosen. It means selected. It means picked out is the ones that are chosen by God. It was the divine choice of God in eternity past to bring to faith certain ones that he loved. It's a doctrine that we wrestle with. It's a doctrine that we struggle with. But whether we love it or whether we hate it, we're forced to study the Bible and to come to some biblical conclusions about it. 
In John 15, 16, Jesus sets the stage and he says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Abide. Luke picks up on the same theme in Acts 13. He says, When the Gentiles heard the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying in the word of God, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. They were the elect. They were chosen. Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 9, he says to Moses, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Ephesians 1.4 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, We ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, because God chose you to be the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. It all started with God's choosing of the nation of Israel, and it's carried on throughout the whole Bible. So who are the elect that Paul is talking about here? The chosen of God. And by the way, when did he make this choice? Well, according to Revelation 13, 8, the choice occurred before the foundation of the world, before anything was created, before you and I existed. Those are the elect. It was God's divine choice. But listen, and listen closely. While it is God's divine choice in eternity past, it is also the fact that that choice is activated in time by our personal faith. Paul's going concern is that every biblical leader, including himself, would proclaim the gospel. Why? Because when the elect hear the gospel, they respond. When the chosen of God hear the gospel, their faith is brought forth and they love Jesus Christ. They repent of their sin. In fact, it was this this idea of the divine choice of God that fueled Paul's mission. Paul didn't want to go into the city of Corinth and God said, Paul, have no fear because I have many in this city. I have many that I've chosen here. And Paul, when you go into the city of Corinth and you start proclaiming the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, those whom I've chosen will come to me. They'll believe. They'll exercise faith. And they'll come. And that's what fueled Paul's evangelism. 2 Timothy 2, Paul says this, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. What is the mission of a godly leader? What is the mission of an elder? What is the mission of a pastor? It is that as the gospel would go forth, the elect would elicit faith. So Paul says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The message is simple. It's this. You're a sinner. You're hopeless. You can't fix yourself. So oftentimes we have this picture of sinners and we picture them like this. They're in an ocean and they're struggling to keep their head above the water. And along comes Jesus and he throws in this life uh, saver and and the the sinner grabs hold and is saved. Well, that's a half truth. The Bible would say that there is no such thing as a sinner who's trying to keep his head above the water. The Bible says that every sinner is dead in his trespasses. 
That sinner is not struggling to keep his head above the water. That sinner is laying on the bottom of the ocean dead. He's dead in his trespasses. He doesn't need a boost of faith. He doesn't need a help. He needs life. (laughs) He needs to be resurrected. He needs a new life. And who is that life giver? It's none other than Jesus Christ. And so we talk about Jesus Christ. We say, sinner, you're helpless, you're hopeless, you're dead in your sin and trespasses. You need a savior. And good for you, Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life and he died for your sins. And he rose again on the third day. And if you will believe in Jesus Christ, he will give you life. He will forgive your sins. That's the gospel message that Paul preaches. And when the elect hear that message, they respond in faith. It makes sense to them. They see it. They repent. John 3.16 says, so God loved, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have what? Eternal life. It's the message of the gospel. And Paul's determined to spread it. He says the mission of a pastor is to bring forth the faith of the elect. That's the first step, is to proclaim the gospel to a dying world. But look what else it does. In the middle of verse 1, the second part of that mission is that there would be a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. What does that mean? Well, it means this. True Authentic, saving faith will prove itself in a godly lifestyle. It's Paul's mission to preach the gospel in such a way that as the gospel is taught and begin to be lived out, that it would produce godly fruit. It is a faith of the elect and a knowledge of the truth that when that knowledge becomes effective, it brings forth godliness. That's, a, that's Paul's mission now you could ask the question I I thought it was inevitable that those who are saved become godly well there's some amount of truth to that but listen it's just like election God elects but election never becomes a reality until saving faith is exercised in the same way God saves people and he changes them into godliness but that that changing doesn't take effect until there's disciplined obedience. And so every gospel preacher, every elder should be preaching obedience. He should be saying this is what the Bible says is true and right. I'm calling you to obey what the Bible says. Because as obedience is put forth, then godliness becomes a fruit. You look at a guy who obeys God's word, and over time we would say he becomes more and more godly. He looks more and more like God because he's obeying the knowledge that he's gaining from the scripture. So every godly leader has a mission not only to bring to faith the elect, but also to teach knowledge so that that knowledge brings forth godliness. There's a third mission here, and you can see it. It's at the end of, or beginning of verse 2. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages begin. The third mission of any godly leader is to paint a picture of the hope that we have waiting for us in eternity. You and I use the word hope very differently than the Bible does. 
when you and I say that we hope something happens, we're saying we wish it happens, we're, we're banking on the fact that it happens. But when the Bible talks about hope, it is a settled fact. It, hope is believing what is not yet yours will be someday. It's a belief system. That's hope. And so when Paul here says that he preaches that his mission is the hope of eternal life, what he's saying is is that he is laying out before his hearers the fact that God is preparing a place in heaven where one day those who believe and are saved will spend all of eternity before the face of God. It is a truth. And I like Paul's sarcasm here. It's a sanctified sarcasm. Notice what he throws in here. He says, God who never lies. <laughs> That's a little jab at the Cretans. Why? Because they're a bunch of liars. And so he says, God who never lies has promised you a hope of eternal life. You can bank on it. You can believe it. You can understand that it is true. So eternal life rests on the fact that God promised it and God never lies, so his promises never fail. That's Paul's point. So let's bring these together. Let's make sense of these. Because we're talking about godly principles in the life of a leader, the life of a pastor, the life of an elder. Let's bring these together and let's make this practical. How do we measure whether or not an elder, a pastor, has a godly mission that Paul is describing here. Well, I would pose it like this. Let me ask some questions. Does this person have a marked passion for the salvation of the lost? That's the first question that we ought to ask. Are they speaking the gospel to the unsaved? Are they spreading the gospel message? Or are they shy? Are they ashamed of the gospel? They're afraid to speak it because they're just not confident in it. Our leaders should have a marked passion for bringing the faith of the elect. The second question, do our leaders call for obedience to God's word? Do our pastors, do our elders say, here's what the Bible says, this is what's right and this is what's wrong? Or do we have a bunch of namsy-pamsy leaders that are afraid to push what's right and wrong for fear that somebody might call them out on it? A leader says, here is the authority This is right and this is wrong. There's a call for obedience that produces godliness. And do our elders, do our pastors, live for the hope of eternal life in heaven? There should be a sense in which every pastor, every elder recognizes this is not my home. I'm just passing through this life. This isn't my home. My real home is in heaven. And as I have my eyes fixed on heaven, that fixture on that eternal hope I have guides everything I do here because I realize I may have what? 50, 60, 80 years here? It's but a blip on the map of eternity. So my eyes are focused out here that guides what I do here. When you get ready to circle your name on that elder paper that you have in front of you, this should be on your mind. Does this person that I'm getting ready to circle, do they have a mission? Do they believe that they have a marked passion for the salvation of the lost? Do they have their eyes fixed on the eternal hope? And do they call for obedience? Are they willing to take a stand and say, this is right and this is wrong? You see how this plays out practically? It's amazing. 
So, Paul has the mindset of a godly leader. I'm humble. I'm a slave. He has the mission of a godly leader. Thirdly, he has the ministry of a godly leader. Look at verse 3. At the proper time, it's been manifested in his word, all these things he's just been talking about, the knowledge of truth, the faith of the elect, the hope of, the, of eternal life, all of that has been manifested in his word, how? Through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Some people tease me, at least I hope that they're teasing, and they say that I have the easiest job in the world. Work one hour on Sunday morning and get paid a monstrous salary to do it. I wish that were the case. But is that the expectation we have of our leaders? Minimum hours and maximum pay? Or is it something different? I would say that Paul here has a very uh, marked expectation for the ministry of a leader of a church. What is the command that he said God has entrusted him to? It's the preaching or the proclamation of God's word. Glance down in verse 9, because in verse 9 we see a little bit further uh, explanation of what he's talking about here. Look at verse 9. He, and by the way, he here is talking about an elder of the church, a pastor of the church. Those two words are used inter, uh, um, interchangeably. Verse 9, an elder, a pastor, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. What should an elder be able to do? He should be able to proclaim the word of God both positively and negatively. Positively in which he is giving instruction in sound doctrine. Negatively in which he is rebuking those who don't hold to it, who contradict it. That is the ministry of every pastor. That's the ministry of every elder. Every godly elder, every godly pastor must have the capacity to teach and it must be put into practice. In Timothy, Paul says an elder must be able to teach. Listen, folks, if we have a leader, quote-unquote leader, in the church who is not able to teach the word of God, defend the word of God, bring the word of God to bear on life circumstances, then we really don't have a biblically qualified leader. We simply have a man with a title. What does this look like practically? Let me give you some things to to hang your hat on. You should be able to go to any biblically qualified leader and he can proclaim the word of God into your life. Are you struggling with some Bible doctrine? You can go to him and he can take you and he can help you through the word of God. Is your marriage struggling? You can go to him and with the word of God he can help you. Do you need help with your parenting? You can go to a biblically qualified leader and he can take you to the word of God and he can help you. If you're worried, if you're anxious, if you fret all the time, you can go to this man and he can help you with the word of God. Are you struggling with a sexual sin? You can go to this man and he can help you with the word of God. And you say, wait a minute. 
Are you expecting that every church leader, every pastor, every elder ought to be able to help every person with every life problem? Yes. Is exactly what I'm saying. But you say he can't do that. He's not trained. Listen, friends. Paul just got done saying that the mission of every leader is the knowledge of truth that accords with godliness. The question isn't the question is not should he be able to do that? That already is answered. Yes. The question is how should he be able to do it? And that is is that he is a man of God's word and he is in there studying so that when you come to that biblically qualified leader he can take you to the word. Because he has the knowledge, that's his mission. He has the mission of bringing knowledge to people that accords with godliness. And if he doesn't have that knowledge, then he needs to acquire it. And if he doesn't want to acquire it, then he needs to step out of that role. Because that's what a biblical leader does. Paul says that's the ministry of every biblical leader. He takes the word of God seriously. And he puts it into practice. Now, that doesn't mean that every elder is preaching from the pulpit. But it does mean that every elder and every pastor, in some capacity, is teaching. Either that's publicly, like I'm doing here, or that's privately, one-on-one kind of ministry. But every biblically qualified leader has the capacity, according to the Bible, to teach and ought to be putting that into practice. So again... I would encourage you, as you're praying about a youth pastor and an associate pastor, that you're thinking, is this person able to teach? Can they bring the word of God to bear on life circumstances? And as you're getting ready to circle a name on that green sheet of paper in front of you, you're thinking, does this person that I'm getting ready to circle, does he have a ministry like Paul's talking about? He's commanded by God to preach the word. Does this person meet that qualification? So, let's move along. There's one more. Let's finish this one quickly. So we've had the the mindset of a godly leader. We've had the mission of a godly leader. We've had the ministry of a godly leader. And fourthly, we have the multiplication of a godly leader. This shows up in verse 4. Look what he says. To Titus, my true child... In a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. What is Titus's relationship to Paul? Well, according to this verse, verse 4, it is a child-father relationship. Titus is a true child in a common faith. What does that mean? That means that Paul has birthed Titus, spiritually speaking, Paul was apparently the one who preached the gospel to Titus, and when Titus heard it, he responded in faith. He became a believer. And so Paul says, it's kind of cool. Like a father, I I preached, and, and this spiritual child was birthed. That is his relationship. What is Paul trying to say here? Paul's trying to show us a godly example of what a leader looks like, and that is he is multiplying himself. He is bringing others along in the ministry. He's discipling somewhere else. Paul can't be everywhere at once. 
And so Paul understands that if ministry is to take place in a broad spectrum, I am going to have to invest in the life of others. And as I invest, they will take that gospel message and they will spread it to the ends of the world. That's what Paul understands. So let's, let's just apply this real quickly. What should we be asking our pastors and our elders today? The question should be to each one of them, who are you discipling? Who are you investing life in? Who are you living life with? Who are you mentoring? Who are you meeting with, explaining the word? And if the answer is no one, then the next question ought to be, when are you going to start? And if the answer to that question is never, then we have a problem, don't we? Because Paul says every godly leader is multiplying himself. He's investing in the life of, no one, of someone else. And so when we begin looking for pastors to fill the roles of youth pastor and of associate pastor, one of the questions that will be asked of them is, who are you discipling? Who are you teaching? Who are you bringing along? And as you are getting ready to circle names on your papers, you ought to be asking do I know if this person is discipling anyone? Are they teaching anyone? Are they investing in anyone? Because we want to make sure that our leaders aren't just satisfied that they have faith and that they understand the word, but they're also investing in others. That's how this plays out. Let's bring this full circle, and then we'll conclude, all right? These are important questions that we're asking this morning. We don't take this lightly. In fact, we take this uh, so heavily that this is why we are willing to pause our study of 1 Corinthians and start a study on Titus right in the middle. It's not typical of what we do here, but this is so important, folks, that, that we are thinking biblical qualifications when we're thinking about pastors, when we're thinking about elders, when we're thinking about new staff. And so as you think about and as you pray about as you consider who God would call to this church in a biblical leadership capacity, there are four things that you ought to be thinking. What's his mindset? Is he under the authority of God? Does he see himself as a slave, as a messenger? What's his mission? Is he all about evangelism? Is he about godliness? Does he have a hope of eternal life? What's his ministry? Is he proclaiming the word? Is he teaching the word? Is that being done publicly? Is that being done privately? Where's the ministry happening? And finally, where's the multiplication? Where's the one-on-one? Where's the investing in the life of others? Where's the discipleship? I hope that those four questions are running through your mind as you're thinking about leaders here at Providence. I fall under these qualifications. I'm supposed to meet these qualifications. Do I do that perfectly? No, I don't. And so by God's grace, I continue to grow in these, as do each one of our current elders, as does Chris. So we need your prayers to meet these qualifications as much as we need the prayers for future leaders to lead this church. These things are absolutely critical. If we miss these things, we doom the church to utter failure. It is that important. Let's pray. Father, you never leave us wondering what you expect in the life of a leader. 
it is without question crystal clear in your word what you look for in an elder. We look for all kinds of things. We look for charm. We look for eloquence of speech. We look for worldly success. We look for vocation. We look at all kinds of things. Father, forgive us for a flippant disregard for your word. Father, I pray that our minds would be focused on the qualifications that Paul is not only getting ready to lay out in the rest of this chapter, but the ones that he's shown us in the first four verses that he's already living. Father, I pray for myself that you would help me to be a godly leader like Paul. What a high standard he's called us to. But I understand that your spirit is at work within me. Your spirit is at work within us as elders that we have the capacity within us to rise to this level of expectation. But it takes hard work. It takes diligence. I pray for this congregation now as we begin to think about who we want to lead this church as our next elder. I pray that these four things would be on the forefront of our minds. That we would set aside all of the other things that we think about of what we think make a leader and we look solely to the sufficiency of your word to determine for us who is a biblical leader. Father, we need your help. And I pray as we continue to think about and pray about uh, pastors at this church and over the next few weeks be taking applications for those, I pray that you would call to this church men who meet these qualifications. Certainly men who are growing in them, uh, but men who have these passions in life, these four life principles guiding them. Father, we need your help. We're dependent on you. We're thankful for grace. We're thankful that the grace is unchanging. So we're thankful that our position in you doesn't change, but I pray that our obedience to you does change and that we become more obedient daily as we seek your help. I love you, and I pray for your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask our praise team. I'm getting attacked by a fly. I'm going to ask our praise team to come up, and we're going to sing a song of response. And When that is finished, if you would cast your vote, and then our elders will come and pick up your papers, okay?